Would you turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3. And as a reminder to those of, us, those of you who are joining us via live stream, uh, we are going to be celebrating the table this morning, the meal that Jesus gave us, and so you should be ready with some bread, preferably, and some juice as we will get there at the end of the sermon today. I think that one of the things that may be off-putting to those investigating Jesus is the fact that he gives commands. We are not a people in this country who like to be told what to do, are we? And he actually told us as his disciples that his commands are what we are supposed to teach other disciples as they are born into his family And it is what they must be fed, his commands, if they are to continue growing as disciples. See Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And part of why that might be off-putting, this life of commands, is that we probably actually do a poor job of representing the connection between Jesus' commands and a good life. Because we ourselves are not a very good testimony of this good life. I mean, often as Christians, we don't look very happy about being Christians. We aren't very joyful. We have a tendency, maybe some of us, to not be very much fun to be around. Especially when we teach the way of Jesus. And what kind of testimonial is that? You know, I wonder if we have forgotten that Jesus actually commanded celebrations. Do you know what a celebration is? A celebration is an acknowledgement of a significant or happy event. There's your dictionary definition. It is a time set aside to express gratitude and thanksgiving, a time to remember something and often to remember someone's people or events that brought us great joy. And in the remembering, joy erupts again, shaping and changing us. And an important part of celebrations is understanding for first-timers to a celebration or remembering for old-timers to a celebration why we are doing what we are doing. It seems to me that remembering what we're doing and why we're doing it would release a kind of joy that would infuse that celebration and make it look like it's supposed to look. Sometimes we forget, don't we? I mean, th- think about this with one of the most common rituals that we celebrate the land over, the world over, birthdays. Birthdays. Ima- imagine, imagine a Martian showing up to your birthday party, right? They, they would have no idea what's going on. Why are you wearing that funny hat? Why are you blowing that thing that it goes like this? Why are you burning the cake, with all those candles. Why are you singing? You op- Why did you give gifts? Well, it's their birthday. We celebrate it every year. Are they born every year? Right? Like They wouldn't understand what those celebrations are for. And sometimes we need to remember. Sometimes we assume. And ever been to a birthday party that wasn't actually all that joyful? <laughs> they forgot. 
Jesus gave us two, celebration, two celebrations. We call them sacraments, ordinances, but they are, in fact, at root, at the core, celebrations. Celebrations that keep us growing one step closer to Jesus as we observe them joyfully, joyfully together, drawing near to Jesus in faith. Baptism and communion are the two sacred celebrations given to us by Jesus himself. They do not save, nor are the elements involved, water, bread, wine, here it's grape juice, They are not magical, yet something spiritual and mysterious and joyful occurs when people are baptized and when we celebrate the Lord's table together if we remember, if we're keen with eyes open to see the mysterious, to see the beauty, to see the supernatural that is happening, the grace of God. Sometimes we react against other denominations who believe differently than we do about these elements and we rob them of the grace of God that is in them and is transported through them to us. Don't do that. They're not saving rites, but they are grace-filled rites and celebrations. Many disciples throughout the centuries have called them sacraments for a reason. The word sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentum, derived from the Greek term mysterion. It means, at core, mystery. And it's to emphasize the divine and sacred nature of these celebrations, which have bound up in them the mysterious presence of Jesus. Okay, so again, maybe you just thought you heard Catholicism or Lutheranism and and things that we might not believe about what's happening in these elements, but Jesus is present here, people. He is present, family. In this celebration, in this gathering, Jesus means for us to be happy this morning, (laughs) to celebrate. So why baptism and why the meal? Well, I want us to remember together, somehow in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to cover both celebrations. First, baptism. Jesus says to celebrate Baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the baptizer, he wasn't a Baptist, he was a baptizer. John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Underline that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Matthew is introducing us to a prophet named John. And what do prophets do? They speak on behalf of God. And he is the one who is speaking after 400 years of silence from God. All the way back, you go all the way back to the prophet Malachi since God has spoken to his people. And this voice now being spoken of is the one who was foretold of by another prophet, Isaiah, as the one who would come and prepare the way of the Messiah. And his declaration is in this is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, to understand that phrase, we must remember the whole story up to this point in history, up to this point where now a prophet is on the stage again, speaking for God again. In order to do that, we have to understand the first 
part of the Bible, right? Here, let me just show you this visually. This is the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. As people of God, we have to understand this, or this is really thin, because it is really thin, right? What gives it thickness and meatiness and joy and understanding is when you understand this part of God's story. So when we look and see what God was doing before this part of the story, over and over again, we saw Yahweh in this part of the story drawing near to his people in mighty displays of power. Go all the way back to Egypt through the plagues, the Red Sea, at Sinai, times in the desert, at the tabernacle, to and through his prophets, in Jerusalem, at the temple, right over and over again, displays of God's power and his presence in the God space, which we call heaven, which isn't some place, we usually look up, right, when we say heaven, but it's just, it's the space that God inhabits that we can't see. In that space so often, in these displays of power, what is happening is the God space is overlapping with the earth space, the man space, right? They're overlapping and coming together. And another way to describe those displays of power, therefore, would be that the kingdom of God, the God space, is drawing near to the kingdom of man, the earth space. And every time that that happens in the Bible, what you see is people being called to repent, obey, and follow a powerful and holy God, to live lives in keeping with how he says they should live their lives because of who he is and all that he requires. And so now here is another of his prophets. It's happening again. Okay, all that history of all that happening, here comes John proclaiming the way of the Lord, making his paths straight, which is to say that God is about to act in power again. That's what they all would have heard. Oh, do you have, I've got goosebumps. They would have heard God is about to do something. We got to be on the lookout. Matthew 3, 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I love John the baptizer. He is a, he's a passionate guy. Are you shocked that I love him? (laughs) He's calling people to righteous living with the fire of God in his soul and a baptism of repentant surrender and a commitment to holy living. And he is calling everybody out. Now, as I said last week, we cannot hear tone in the Bible. And while I believe there is great gravity in what John is saying, there is also gladness here. 
which ought to mark all of our gatherings, family. My prayer every Sunday when we get together is that gravity and gladness would fall on us because I don't think you can understand who Jesus is without joy quickly following. And I think it would help you to see this if you heard Luke's version of the story, right? That's what we do. We go throughout these biographies of Jesus and we get different angles. And so you read all of them so you can kind of get the whole story through the four different sets of eyes that are telling the story. And Luke points out that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance, Luke chapter 3, verse 3, for the forgiveness of sins, In other words, what is being celebrated in baptism is the forgiveness offered to us by God. And people then respond to the preaching of that by submitting, accepting, and following. And there's joy in that. New life. I'm part of God's family now. Why wouldn't we celebrate that? And in a display of impeccable timing, (laughs) right at this moment, right in the middle of his sermon, calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus shows up. The very one that John is proclaiming. Man, Jesus knows how to make an entrance, don't he? Then Jesus, verse 13, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? (laughs) Who, if you were John the baptizer, who among us wouldn't say exactly what he just said right there? You got to be out your mind, Jesus. I'm not baptizing you. You baptize me. If baptism is a sign of repentance from sin, of purification of a commitment to follow God and live a life of holiness and obedience, of doing all that he requires, if it's an outward display of an inward reality of that happening and changing, why would Jesus need to do this? You ever ask that? Why? He has no sin, so therefore no repentance is required of him. So isn't John correct in saying that Jesus doesn't need to be baptized? It would seem that he is. Matthew 3.15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus, in my baptism, it is fitting for us, John, you and I, to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, once again, We have to be aware of the larger story in order to understand what Jesus is saying here. Matthew has just told us about Joseph in Matthew chapter 2 and Mary and Jesus, right, needing to flee to Egypt. Jesus had gone down into Egypt for their safety. And now here we see Jesus going down and into and through the waters. And then Matthew is going to move immediately in chapter 4 into the story of Jesus exiting those waters and going into a wilderness for a time of testing, right? We, We preached on that a few weeks ago. Testing by the Holy Spirit and tempting by the devil. He's going into the wilderness to do that. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is acting out a second exodus. But this time, as true Israel, 
just as Israel was brought into Egypt and then through waters, the Red Sea, and then into a desert for a time of testing, Jesus goes into Egypt, goes through the waters of the Jordan and baptism, and is sent out into the wilderness for a time of testing. (sighs) Is that amazing? Isn't it amazing, the, the unity of the story of God? But unlike unrighteous and disobedient and thus needing repentance Israel, Jesus as true Israel, he's now saying, I will fulfill all righteousness by doing all of this and doing it perfectly. But there's more. For through his baptism, Jesus accomplished what is symbolized in every single baptism that is commanded, Matthew 28, verse 16, and celebrated around the world and throughout time. Namely, Jesus takes unrighteous and and then repentant people through the ultimate exodus, namely, out of the exodus of their own sin. In other words, Jesus was baptized not for his sake, but for yours. And in this way, the words of the Father for Jesus as his son are true for every single son and daughter of God that exits from baptismal waters. This is my beloved child. When Brittany was baptized down by the river, God was sitting on his throne and said, here's my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Friends, this is what we celebrate at baptism and this is why we celebrate at baptisms. Every single time a baptism happened, it displays a miracle of the grace of God. It is a visible picture of the transformation of a broken, hopeless sinner into a being-made whole, hope-filled saint. And when someone is baptized, we see a man or woman, boy or girl, bursting up through the waters, skies cracking open, gracious words of a loving Father showering down upon them. And at every baptism, we are meant to see, therefore, I believe, at every baptism, that person traveling back, as it were, through history to that moment with Jesus and walking with Jesus through those waters and coming up out of them. That's the mystery. That's the sacramentum. That's what's mind-blowing. It's because Jesus had you in mind. He's acting that out for every person. When he went under the water, he died, right? That's what, that's what baptism waters are. You're dying to a death and you're rising to new life, walking now in newness of life. And the only way you can do that is because you're in Jesus. Do you, do you see that? I fear that as chronological snobs, we, we miss these mysterious connections to the past. And there's something that I think ontologically, like a a state of being, there's something real that we can't see, but it's very real. There's a connection for every baptismal person back to that moment in Jesus, which I think is absolutely remarkable. So that I think that every 
baptism is absolutely breathtaking if we would see it the way that we're supposed to see it with God's eyes. Because what is happening then? How do we draw all this to a conclusion? At every single baptism, the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. The God space is overlapping into the man space in that moment of baptism. So why do we let, as whatever we call ourselves, evangelicals, Christians, disciples of Jesus, why would we let other denominations celebrate things like confirmations or what have you? I think, you know, I'm this new pastor here and I'm instituting all kinds of new crazy things, aren't I? I want to have an Easter festival this year and we're working hard on that for an Easter festival for 2023. I think every time we have a baptism, there ought to be balloons and there ought to be confetti and we ought to be having a meal and celebrating because in that moment, the kingdom of heaven is drawing near if we would see it. And that is worth celebrating. I want us to have lots and lots of celebrations at Grace Church. Isn't it great that Jesus gives us a celebration like this? So now, how might you be a part of this miracle of grace and take this next step? It's really simple. Confess your sins and your need. If you haven't done this before, ask Jesus to save you by giving you his righteousness, right? All my sin for your grace. You just sang it. What a glorious exchange. (laughs) What? You're going to give me all your grace for all my dirty, rotten, filthy sins? What a glorious exchange. It just has Jesus to do that. Take all of your dirtiness and give you all of his purity and then be baptized. Because if you're a disciple of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, don't take this the wrong way, but you need to hear this. You're an incomplete disciple of Jesus. And we haven't served you well if we haven't been clear about that. The Bible doesn't have a category for an unbaptized disciple of Jesus. It just doesn't. When Peter preached and people fell on their knees and said, brothers, now what do we do? What did he say? Repent and be baptized. Don't wait. Don't have to prove anything. Just confess, believe, be baptized. So we'd love to celebrate with you. Just talk to a pastor or one of the elders if you're an elder here, would you raise your hand? Raise your hand if you're an elder. Talk to one of these guys, and they'll, they'd love to talk to you about baptism because baptism is entrance into the family of God. But Jesus also gave us a family meal. And just as Egypt and Exodus is wrapped up in the sacrament of baptism, so also in the sacrament of communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's table, the various names for it. Because understanding the story of God's dealing with Israel in the Old Testament in the story of the Old Covenant is key to understanding this meal that Jesus gave us. We call it the Last Supper, but in one sense, it really is the First Supper, isn't it? It was doing both of those things. It was ending Passover and creating a new meal. If you don't know this story, God's people, the nation of Israel, as we just saw a little bit, had been oppressed by the nation of Egypt. And through a prophet named Moses, Yahweh... Yahweh declared that he would bring about their exodus. You heard Dan read this, Exodus chapter 6. I want to highlight verses 5 to 7. You can turn there in your Bibles if you would. Listen to the four promises of Yahweh and maybe underline them. 
I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. Don't miss that. I have heard the groaning. I love that. I love that God hears our pain. He hears when we cry. The things that weigh us down, the groans that we utter to others, maybe to nobody else. Maybe you're here this morning and there's something that's just deeply, deeply hurting. You have a deep burden, a deep ache, a deep hurt. And the only, the only one that knows it is your closet. But now you just heard that he hears. He hears the groanings of his people. And he says, I have remembered, I remember. When I hear that groaning, I remembered my covenant. So Moses, I want you to say something to the people of Israel. Tell them my name. Tell them my name. I am Yahweh. I've always been, I always will be. I'm constant and never changing. That's what that means. His name is actually a verb. I am. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you, set you free from the slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I am Yahweh. And for those of us familiar with the story, we know that what followed was ten mighty acts, plagues, of God that accomplished him bringing his people out from the bondage of Egypt. And the last of those plagues, do you remember? Remember the last plague? It was the killing of the firstborn sons. And in order for Israel to receive protection from Yahweh and this plague of judgment to bring about freedom, the people were to kill a lamb, spread the blood on the doorposts of the home so that when the angel of death passed over sent to kill the firstborn son, that angel would pass over that home. And in remembrance of this act that brought about their deliverance, God instituted the Passover feast to happen yearly among his people. They were to kill a lamb and spread the blood, remembering their salvation from judgment. Year after year after year, they were to eat unleavened bread, for leaven among God's people was a symbol of sin, and that bread symbolized sinlessness. They were to eat bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitterness of their bondage. This meal would serve as a reminder of God's reconciliation with his people and between his people, a memorial and celebration of his salvation, gravity and gladness. Now, fast forward through history from the exodus at Egypt to the night that Jesus is going to be killed. We read in each of the four accounts of his life that he celebrated this meal with his disciples. And think about this, just as he had celebrated every single year of his life. Now, my understanding is that by the time of Passover, they had instituted a tradition of these four promises of God in Exodus 6 being represented by four cups. We're not sure if it was four separate cups or if it was one cup that was celebrated in each of the reading of the promises. 
But this cup, these cups of wine were a part of the meal. So now it's time to get your imagination active again, okay? See the disciples gathered around in that upper room, reclining on the floor, right? Back to front. So they've been laying down like this, and then another guy laying by them like this all the way around a table, right? And there, there's the bread, the roasted lamb, bowls filled with oil, bitter herbs for dipping your bread into cups of wine. And now see Jesus hosting this meal and he begins to lead them through the story of Passover, taking them through the cups, walking them through the promises. First cup, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Second cup, I will set you free and deliver you from slavery to them. And the meal would then begin, bread and bitter herbs reminding them of the bondage. Maybe it's here that Jesus would have spoke of the bitterness of Judas betraying him. The disciples beginning discussions, Judas and Jesus dipping the bread into the bowl at the same time. And while eating, Jesus takes the unleavened bread and says, this is my body. And the disciples would have done a double take. Maybe some conversation starts between, did he just say my body? He's ch- That's not in the story. That's not the tradition. What is he doing? He's creating a new celebration because he's enacting a new covenant between God and his people. And just as in baptism, in baptism, the kingdom of heaven is once again drawing near. A miracle of grace is happening as a new meal is being instituted in this moment by Jesus. Can you hear him? This bread which represents your freedom from bondage, this bread without yeast, this sinless bread is my body my sacrifice, my offering. And now when you eat it, remember not the exodus and the plagues and all of that deliverance. Remember your new deliverance. Remember me. And he keeps leading, keeps hosting, even as their minds, can you imagine their minds just must be reeling with questions and puzzlement. And and he takes them deeper into the meal. They would have moved to the third cup. This would have been the cup of gratitude and thanksgiving. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And again, he shocks them. This cup, this redemption promise is my blood offered for you. I am now the Lamb of God and it is my blood that is taking away the sins of the world. Drink of it, all of you, for it's my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Can you imagine them again? Has he lost his mind? Does he not know the command of God? Do not drink the blood of the animal when you sacrifice it. What is this talk of drinking of blood, of drinking his blood? Imagine how shaken they are. Wondering even as he moves to the fourth cup in which is found the last promise of Yahweh, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And for a Jew on Passover night to hear that promise is to have an image of marriage and language of covenant. The great bridegroom is now taking us to be his people. He's this beautiful promise that I'm never alone and he's always with me and I'm his. I'm the bride. He's got me. He's protecting me. 
And in that moment, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And can you imagine them yet again wondering, what are you saying, Jesus? What do you mean you'll not drink of this cup again? What about the protection of the great bridegroom promised to his people? Why would you sacrifice this? Why would you stop drinking of this cup? Jesus is amazing. Do you see what he has just said to them and to us? In essence, Jesus has said, I will not drink of the taking promise of Yahweh tonight. Instead, I will leave myself vulnerable and outside his protection. I will be forsaken and I will not drink again until every last one of my brothers and sisters, my redeemed and rescued bride is safely taken in to a new heavens and a new earth. I will fast until that day. Jesus has reshaped the promises of Exodus 6. He has said, I am the son of Yahweh. And I will bring you out from the burdens of your old way of life, from all your bondage and slavery to sin. And I will change who you are and I will set you free from that nature and I will make you new in me. And I will redeem you, cleansing you of the stains of your past that were there due to your slavery. And I will forever take you to myself to be part of my family, to be mine, never to be forsaken, never to be alone. I am the Son of Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Friends, These are the promises of this table. This is who we celebrate and what we celebrate. It is why we find gravity here. Gravity because of the cost of this table, but gladness here because we're redeemed, sanctified, set free with the blood of Christ. You're just saying it, right? All my sin for your grace. What a glorious exchange. What happens at this table is that we are meant to look back to the past and the cross of Christ and all of that rushes into this present moment. And we are meant to look forward to the future and a marriage, what? Feast of the what? Lamb of God. The past and the future come into the present mystery, remarkably, amazingly, and the kingdom of God, the God's space overlaps with the earth's space here at 1320 D Street. The kingdom of heaven has come in this table. And there's a challenge right now in this moment because in this place are stories of brokenness and darkness that you've brought in with you. It may be an excruciating family crisis with a child. It may be an unrelenting personal crisis of despair and worry. It may be a challenging physical illness or disease or injury. It may be a stubborn addiction that 
threatens to rear its head. There are a host of situations and circumstances and people that deplete us and leave us weary and fragile and risk of losing all hope. And that could keep you from believing the possibility and the promise of this table, the power of this table. It is what had happened to Israel. Did you catch it when Dan read it? That last sad sentence? And they did not listen to Moses when he gave them these promises because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They couldn't see it. And that's, what's, that's the danger here. So maybe you come in this morning and you have a broken spirit because of the harsh slavery of sin in your life. I can't do anything about that. Not a thing. But God can. I said it this morning with you. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I do. And I believe He means to move right now, this morning, to free you. And all you need to do to take this next step with Jesus is to confess your sins and to admit that there's nothing that you can do about it and ask him to save you and be baptized and enter into the family and then come to Jesus and take part in the family meal.